This is the recording made in the chapel of the open book, and it is number seven of the series entitled, Truly Furnished. We will read a part of the fifth chapter of John's Gospel as our reading, and then go on without break. And I hope that if you can hear the thunder in the distance, you won't blame us for that. John, the fifth chapter. We have been told by friends in America that sometimes they're conscious that our clock is not going because the clock apparently impinges on this and leaves its little tick there behind, see. So what the thunder's going to do, I don't know. We must hope for the best. John, the fifth chapter. Our saviour in this John, the fifth chapter, has been very much accused by the Jews and he's made some very wonderful statements but at last he comes down to witness concerning himself. And I'm going to pick up the reading at the 39th verse, leaving the rest for you to examine at your leisure if you have any. John the 5th chapter verse 39. And before I read the verse, I want to remind you that if you're looking at the original, exactly the same word spelled with exactly the same letters can be the imperative, a command, or can be the indicative and says, you do. Now that's a bit of grammar, but it's useful. So instead of saying, search the scriptures as a command, the Lord was speaking to scripturists who were called scribes, who could quote chapter and verse without looking at the book. He said, you do search the scriptures. I acknowledge it. You search the scriptures. For in them, you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. You see? That's hugging the lamp so close that you don't see the one that it's illuminating. Paul, writing to Timothy, said, From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. He didn't stop there. Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, that's the scriptures got to do, they lead you to Christ. So he says, you're full of the scriptures, aren't you? And I, the one who came to fulfill them all, am rejected by you. What a tragedy. I receive not honour from men, but I know you, that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe which receive honour one of another? and seek not the honour that cometh from God only. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall he believe my words? He leaves it as a question. So I'm going to start immediately with that suggestion. Because there are those who take the line, as long as we preach the simple gospel, it doesn't matter two hoots whether Moses wrote it or not, you see. Or you say, how wonderful. All right. The simple gospel. Now, will you tell me what you think one verse in the whole New Testament gives you in germ, in the simplest form, the gospel? Well, we wouldn't go far before somebody said John 3.16, would we? So shall we look at John 3.16? And instead of saying that for, 
with which John 3.16 starts is a logical conjunction. We'll call it a grappling or a link in a chain. Now, you know, sometimes an accident happens because that grappling or link in the chain breaks, comes undone and away goes a truck off the end and causes damage. You see, this man who says, all I'm bothering about is a simple gospel, John 3.16, hasn't bothered to look at four. It doesn't say God so loved the world, it says for God so loved the world. Well, you say, what's that got to do with it? Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Could you possibly say, as Moses, who never existed, lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, and nobody was there of Israel? You say, well, you can't say that, because that empties the whole thing of meaning. So as our Saviour said in, in the fifth chapter, so he said here, or whoever wrote this passage, John himself, that there is a vital connection between what Moses said and what Christ did. Well, that's our challenge. Today, I'm not going into the question of the scientific attitude, but the scientific attitude that results in what? Taking away foundations from a building and then wondering why the whole lot totters. You wouldn't be very happy if you said, oh, I'm living upstairs on the third or fourth story, but they say, they're cutting holes in the foundation, putting a stick of dynamite in it. Oh, it doesn't matter to me, I'm living at the top. You see, you wouldn't do that in the ordinary way. Well, that's what's happening. So I'm going to ask you to consider today, supposing you adopt the attitude that you cannot possibly believe the book of Genesis. Are you conscious of how much you're throwing away? All right, let's start, because we should have to pack this into the time we have at our disposal. So if I ask you to turn quickly to passages, do so. And if you find that turning to them is rather a nuisance to you, I'll assure you I won't misquote them, and you could check everything I say afterwards, if you will. I'm going to turn to the second book of Chronicles. Now you say, what's that about? Well, at the end of Israel's, uh, or at uh, the end of a certain period in Israel's history, they began to, um, oh, the, the first book of Chronicles, they, they began to uh, make out the pedigree of the people. Now it starts. First Chronicles chapter 1. Here it is. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Nahaniel, Jireh. So he goes on. Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Oh my, 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 I turn the page. Here they are, we've got to chapter 3, there's David. And we haven't finished yet. Chapter 4. Chapter 5. Sons of Reuben. Chapter 6. Sons of Levi. Uh, where are we going to stop? Chapter 7. Do you mean to tell me these people were such utter fools that they come right up to their own day, their own parents, and not one of them knows that their pedigree is all false? Where do you draw the line across this opening chapters, nine chapters of the first of Chronicles, and say, that's where fairy tales end, and that's where history begins. It's utterly impossible. And when you know that these people were very jealous of their genealogy for it involved their inheritance, and in the priestly line they were set aside if they couldn't prove it, and when you come to the New Testament and know how the enemies of Christ 
did their utmost to discover some loophole, but the one thing they never questioned, never questioned, was that it was the house of David. Because they couldn't, because there in the Jerusalem was the Somerset house of the people of Israel, and everyone could go and prove his genealogy. So shall we now turn to the uh, first chapter of Matthew? Now the book of Genesis starts, of course, with Adam, but the book of Genesis is also committed to the story of Abraham. Genesis 12. So Matthew starts like this, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, if Genesis is wrong, the genealogy of Christ is gone. This is all fiction. But he goes on to say, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob. This is not fairy tales. Abraham begat Isaac. And he goes all the way down the same story until you get to Joseph. A literal pedigree. And then, his name is Jesus. Then is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. His name should be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So no Genesis, no genealogy. No genealogy. Well, we say with the Mary, they have taken away my Lord. And I know not where they have laid him. But Luke goes further if you'll turn the page to the third chapter of Luke's Gospel. And it says at the baptism, after the baptism at Jordan, verse 23, And Jesus himself being about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, now this can be translated as was supposed, but the word is made up really of the word to reckon, logically, and in a birth certificate. You wouldn't get very far if you said, well, I'm supposed to be the son of so-and-so and born so-and-so. You are supposed. Well, you've got to have it a bit definite. Now, this pedigree gives the line of Mary without mentioning her name until you get to the end. And it gives the husband of Mary instead because pedigrees in the Old Testament always went through the male line. So, he was legally reckoned the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son right the way down until you get to the last verse, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. So that endorses one chronicles, right the way back through from Adam to Christ. So here these two genealogies stand or fall as to whether we say the book of Genesis is true or whether it isn't. Are you prepared just because of somebody intimidates you a little bit with regard to certain bits of geology that they, they bring up, having no bearing on the case, to say, well, I am no Christ. He's proved to be a myth, or a legend, or a fiction, or a non-historic character, or what not. Again, weigh the consequences. Well then, supposing we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and see whether we are prepared to, to let this go. Now, what is 1 Corinthians 15 about? Well, particularly, the hope of the resurrection. Well, is the resurrection very, very, very important? Well, let the Apostle tell you what he thinks about it. He says in verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain? And your faith is also vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God, 
because he hath testified of God that he raised up Christ, who be raised not up from the dead, if so be, that the dead rise not. And if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Are you prepared for that? No resurrection. Your faith is vain. Christ has died in vain, even if Christ did live. We don't know whether he did or not. They which have fallen asleep in Christ, trusting in him, have all gone, and that's the end of them. You're waiting for that. But he said, what's they got to do with Genesis? Oh, I see. All right. Verse 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Well, what man was that? For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Are you going to say, as in a fiction, a little fairy tale, you all die, so you can't do it, you're stunk, you're done. If the first man is a fiction, the other ones must be the same. As in Adam, all die, even so in Christ, shall all be made alive. But it's more specific than that presently when you turn the page. He says, verse 45, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, that's quoting Genesis 2, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy, that's quoting practically, referring to Genesis 2 and 3, dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Well, if Adam is a fiction, we've never borne the image of the earthy, well, then we can't possibly go on and say, but we know we're going to bear the image of the heavenly. It's all washed out. You've only got to throw away Genesis, to throw away the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, the Apostle Paul tells you, so far as he's concerned, he says, if after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the philosophy that comes, and it eats into the heart and morals of a people that say Genesis is fiction. Because, you see, Paul's witness is absolutely committed to the first two chapters of Genesis. Now will you come to Romans, the fifth chapter? And I'm speaking to those who have some knowledge of the book. I think you will all agree with me that of all the epistles of Paul, if we're going to make distinction between them, the one which is most fundamental with regard to the basis of our hopes is the epistle to the Romans, with its great stress upon justification by faith and the redemptive work of Christ. The others are supplementary, they expand. But are you willing to let Romans slide? You haven't got it, because the heart of the matter is Romans 5. And here it says, in verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, so that's the same as 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians says, by man came death, Romans 5 says, by man came sin, and they don't go together, uh, and so death passed upon all men, for that all had sinned. For unto the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Are they fictions or fact? 
If they're fictions, well, it's a dreadful lot of delusion that's being built up here when he's going to come out with the triumphant words there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus for I am persuaded that neither angel nor principality, all that's gone. Because you see, we don't know whether death came by Adam if we don't believe Genesis. We think it's only a process of evolution and we're all evolving and growing up and getting better and better and I don't know what, see? You're done. You've got no hope in Christ. You've got no hope of resurrection. You've got no idea of Christ being your head in the spiritual world and being your saviour. God, are you willing? Because you don't know all the ins and outs of creation and God hasn't told you to throw the book away which is the foundation block upon which the rest stands. So you see already we've practically mutilated the Old Testament in one Chronicles We've also mutilated the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1 and, and Luke 3. We've got no hope of resurrection because we can't stick 1 Corinthians 15 and we don't know a word about justification and righteousness and sin and death because we don't believe Romans 5. Well, you say you've got a pretty bad Bible already. What are you going to hang on to? You can't go to John 3.16 for already said it was as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. All right, let's have another group then. Um, in the 17th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, Paul visits Athens, the city of learning. And I think it's very remarkable that uh, this little Jew that they called a seed picker, translated a babbler, Shakespeare would have called him a snapper-up of unconsidered trifles. He's come and listen to this seed picker, come into Athens to tell us. And do you know what word he uses twice when he speaks to the Athenian philosophers? He says ignorance, superstition. That's what he tells them. But that doesn't prove he was true, but this is what he says. Verse 25 and 26. Uh, God is neither wor worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. Well, that's just a statement. He doesn't elaborate it, but he's committed himself that the book of Genesis says that at the flood, the Gentile world was divided up under the three heads of Shem, Ham and Japheth, then subdivided under the different, uh, until you get 70 nations, and that's the pedigree of the nations of the earth to this day. And so far as the uh, one blood is concerned, that's accepted too. The colour of the skin may differ, the shape of the eyes, the length of the nose, and I don't know what, but one blood, they can intermarry, and no difficulty, no, no, no problem about it except the problem of economics and morals that sometimes arise. Well, again, you see, is the Acts of the Apostles and Paul speaking there, which would have to be set aside. Now, shall we turn to the Gospel, Gospel of Matthew, the 19th chapter. This is where we shall have our Lord himself speaking to the people. 19th chapter, <clears throat> verse 3, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read? Well, that's a strange answer, isn't it? Christ himself, the word of God himself, could have told him straight away what he thought about it. He didn't. Have you not read? Well, Lord, are you bound by what is written? He says, I've come not to destroy the law, but every jot and tittle in it to preserve it. 
Had he not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? Say, yes, I've read that. Well, where did you read it? Well, in our version, the last verses of chapter 2 of Genesis. But Lord, do you mean to tell me that you're so old-fashioned as to believe Genesis? Could you say that in front of him? The Son of God, who became the victor of sin and death, who ascended and sat down at the right hand? Or could you? Well, you say, perhaps he doesn't believe the book of Moses now, he knows all things. Well, we'll see that in a moment. So here he throws them back onto the book of Genesis. Shall we then look at this other thought as to whether perhaps after he was raised from the dead he changed his um, attitude a bit? Because I actually had this explained to me uh, by a professor of a college who I think if looks could have killed, you know, he looked daggers but they didn't apparently hurt me. He said that as long as Christ was upon the earth, even in resurrection, he knew no more than a Palestine peasant. And he was the leader of a college training men to go out and preach. Now this is what I wanted to notice in Luke 24. This is what upset him rather badly. Verse 44. Luke 24. And he said unto them, and when you quote this from memory, you'll find that you'll say, he, for he said that the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were true. And that's what he did say. But he said something before that which is most vital. He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. So the risen Christ is endorsing all that he said beforehand. So you've now got to say, not merely the peasant, carpenter who was born at Nazareth believed Moses you've got to say the triumphant Christ of God says and what I said I endorse and what did he say that were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me now that's enough <coughs> in, a, in a sense but then that was the technical name for the Old Testament on the shelves we have the Hebrew Bible and if you look on the cover at the outside, even though you couldn't read a letter, you'll see it's got three titles. Torah, Nebaim, Tefillim. Oh, you say, thank you very much. What does that mean? The law, the prophets, and the writings, all the Psalms. And Christ endorsed the whole of the Old Testament by quoting that title. And he was the risen Christ when he did so. Now, it would take us all a tremendous time of what a wealth it would be if we started from Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophecy of his birth, and came up step by step through his earthly life, to the bitter cross, to the words he actually said on the cross, they pierced my hands and my feet, they cast lots upon my vesture, the resurrection, the ascension, it's all there in the Old Testament. And he came and fulfilled it all. Don't you say, don't you become unconscious that this is a matter of a split loyalty. If I'm going to side with those who throw over the book of Genesis, I most certainly have got to throw over the Son of God. I've got to tell him that I'm very sorry that at long last I, I must differ from him. And then I'm going to bow in the presence of Christ and say, O oh Lord, thou art my Redeemer, I trust my soul's eternal salvation to you, but I wish you were a bit more up to date with regard to this idea of the book of Genesis. Could you say that? You couldn't, could you, unless you're going raving mad. 
So I'm saying to you, stop and think several times before you throw away that book. For when you do, you throw away, throw away more than at first appears. We haven't finished yet. Shall we have another look? 1 Timothy chapter 2. Oh, you say, is there a bit more about Adam? Oh, yes, friends, a bit more. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 12. He's speaking about a peculiar problem they had in the early church. But he says in verse 13, that Adam was first formed, then Eve. But where did he get that from? Well, he gets that from the book of Genesis. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Well, where did he get that from? He got that from Genesis 3. But you say, I don't know. By the time I've got rid of Romans, 1 Corinthians 15, some of the Acts of the Apostles, the Gospel according to Matthew, great chunks of the, of the, the Gospel of John, now we're coming into the Epistles like Timothy. Well, where do we stop? Well, let's have another look. Go back a bit. You can, you can uh, see that it affects the second epistle to the Corinthians as well as the first. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. For I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve, through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Well, if Eve didn't exist, here's another argument that's gone west. So I think I've displayed enough to say, well, if I'm not going to believe the book of the, the scriptures uh, of Genesis, I've got a very slim hold on life, eternal life, salvation. I've got shreds and tatters of the New Testament. Well, then we start all over again with another controversial character. As it was in the days of Noah. Oh, you say, you don't believe that, do you? Well, uh, my Saviour seemed to, didn't he? As it was in the days of Noah. And in the Old Testament, Ezekiel says, though Job and Noah and Daniel stood in my presence, those three only should save themselves by their righteousness. But you say, but Lord, look, uh, it, Daniel may have been a man that really, but oh, you don't believe in Job and Noah, do you? See? Looks as though they did. And so we have the other controversial figure. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, do notice it doesn't say a whale, although there are whales that could have swallowed not only Jonah but his boat and all, now they know, but they didn't know always. But you say, ah, but that's only quoting a myth. Ah, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, I haven't finished. If you go on reading in Matthew 12, he says, for the men of Nineveh shall rise in the judgment of that day and condemn you. Oh, you say, that's a funny thing, Lord. Men who never had an existence, to whom a mythical character never went, are going to rise in the resurrection. Well, we're getting somewhere, aren't we? It looks as though it's, it's far more difficult to disbelieve the old book than to accept it. We get ourselves so tangled up that we don't know. And this is true, friends, sadly true. We shan't know whether we are coming or going, or whether there's anywhere to go to, or if there is, is there a chart or compass worth trusting? 
Think of our position. We are here in this world with conflicting voices and the only book that sets out to tell us the reason why death is here and sin is here and how God has dealt with it and what he's going to do about it is denied. So we don't know whether we want to go back or forward or we don't know whether there is any back or forward. Would you change places with a person like that? Would you listen to them? So I say do way over seriously again and again before you allow one verse from this book to be filched from you. Well then as we said about Abraham let's give him a hearing. John the 8th chapter Oh, a tremendous challenging passage because it involves the very person of Christ himself. John the 8th chapter. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. They said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily I say unto you, Before Abraham was or came into being, I am. That's a claim of deity. But the point we're making today is, that if Abraham is a fiction, if he never existed, well what about Christ? Christ says, Before Abraham came into being, I am. Before a fictitious character like Abraham, a myth and a legend, you can't go on, can you? You're stuck again. Or would you look at the seventh chapter of the Acts of the Apostles? And don't forget you're listening to a man who was speaking to his enemies, who if they could have found one spot in his teaching that was contrary to the Old Testament scriptures, they would have been at him. They finally stoned him to death simply because that he exposed their attitude of antagonism to Christ. And he was full of the Holy Ghost which is something a bit extra from what we have today. Now this is what he said in the 7th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Men and brethren, fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. So he immediately puts his finger on that 12th chapter, the 11th and 12th chapter of Genesis as historic truth. And he goes further. He says about Joseph in the land of Egypt. Verse 13, and at the second time Joseph was made known unto his brethren. And then he comes further and he says that Moses, he fled into the wilderness and in verse 35, this Moses whom they refused, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge, the same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared unto him. And ultimately, at the end of the chapter, he said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, verse 51, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Well, if these were not your fathers, if they didn't exist except in myth and legend, where are we again? Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before to the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. So here's Stephen. There's the gospel according to Matthew. There's the gospel according to, God, uh, to John. There's the two epistles to the Corinthians. There's the epistle to the Romans. There's the epistle of Timothy. And there are other references scattered through the New Testament. 
genealogies and allusions and whatnot. You know what you could do with that New Testament? The best thing is to make a sort of sort of lampshade of it, to have little holes through which you can see because you had to cut so much out that you didn't agree with. It wouldn't hang together. That's what they're doing with a lamp to our feet and a light to our path in the name of science. That is not science. That is merely antagonism. Because, as we've said, the scripture only goes back a few thousand years to where God started the great redemptive work with Adam in the image of God. And that is the subject which is pursued right through until presently you and I will stand in his likeness. For God has predestinated that every redeemed child of his shall one day be conformed to the image of his Son. As we have borne the image of the earthly, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly. But if, if there's no earthly image ever been, there never will be a heavenly one, because you can't go on. I hope you're beginning to realise, friends, that it is no light matter to allow someone to filch from you the first chapters of Genesis. Because if they do, the superstructure must ultimately go to its downfall. In the Romans, not only do we have in Romans 5, Adam, but you have in Romans 4, Abraham. So I think we'll give that a notice. Romans 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? Or if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Oh, Paul, you're actually going to quote the scripture, are you? Yes. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So he's quoting Genesis 15. Oh, we're getting on, aren't we? This is Paul again, committing us and himself. Well, then if you'll look at Romans, the 11th chapter. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. You seem pretty certain of it, Paul. This is I should think I was. I know my pedigree, I know my genealogy, and it's never been questioned by either friend or foe. And the Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, I think it is. Speaking of Christ as the kinsman redeemer, he says in verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil and deliver him who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now I'm not going to dispute the quote translation of verse 16 for the moment. All I'm bothering about is, he took upon him the seed of Abraham. So now we find that Christ is the second man, the last Adam, he's the seed of Abraham, and then we'll go to the first verses of, of Romans He's the seed of David. So we're coming up into the historical parts of the Bible. And they're all linked together. So we come back to the opening words which we read in John 5. If you believe not Moses' writings, how shall you believe my words? 
And we can supplement those by the ending of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. If they believe not Moses, neither would they believe that no one rose from the dead. That's the estimate of the Son of God. So once again I leave it with you, whoever you may be, who have the responsibility of standing up before men in the name of God and opening his book. Do realise that when you start tinkering with any one part, you're touching the whole. For it's one united witness from the beginning, Genesis 1 verse 1, unto the end, 1 Corinthians 15, when God should be all in all. And if you break a link anywhere, you've broken the chain and the whole thing ends in disaster. We've got other aspects that we want to bring before you, not in this negative way, but in other ways. But for the moment we leave these serious propositions with you and ask you to give them full credence. And remember that if you're in any measure rejected by the men of your own generation, you're only standing where the Son of God stood in his.